Welcome to Harmony Christian Church Podcast. For more information about us, visit HarmonyChurchFamily.org. All right, I want to talk to you this morning about the subject of grace. On the subject of grace. So we're going to look first in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 through 10 is where we're going to read. Let me read this to you. It says, Dear friends, let me give you clearly the heart of the gospel that I've preached to you, the good news that you have heartily received on, on, and on which you stand. For it was through the revelation of that gospel, or the gospel, that you are being saved if you fasten your life firmly to the message I've taught you, unless you have believed in vain. For I have shared with you what I have received and what is of the utmost importance. The Messiah died for our sins, fulfilling the prophecies of the scripture. He was buried in a tomb and was raised from the dead after three days as foretold in the scriptures. Then he appeared to Peter the rock and to the 12 apostles. He also appeared to more than 500 of his followers at the same time, most of whom are still alive as I write this, though a few have passed away. Then he appeared to Jacob, or James, the brother of Jesus, and to all the apostles. Last of all, he appeared in front of me like one born prematurely ripped from the womb. Yes, I am the most insignificant of all the apostles, unworthy even to be called an apostle because I hunted down believers and persecuted the church. And here's the scripture I want to hang on to today. It says, but God's amazing grace has made me who I am, and his grace to me was not fruitless. In fact, I worked harder than all the rest, yet not in my own strength, but God's, for his empowering grace is poured out upon me. For his empowering grace is poured out upon me. So grace is one of those Christian words we hear a lot about. We hear people reference it a lot. It's, it's, it's in the Bible. I don't even know how many times, lots of times. Um, but, it, but, I, but I think a lot of times we take for granted what grace actually is and what it actually means. So I want to take just a moment and, and explain to you what grace is. Um, the word grace in the Greek means charis uh, or kersh. In, the, in Hebrew. If you were to do Hebrew, it's mostly phlegm. So it's something like, Ugh. so, but that's not important, right? We don't speak Greek, so we speak English. So it's the word grace. It means this. It means favor, to be favorable towards, inclined towards favor. So basically favor, <laughs> to be, or to extend oneself towards a gift, kindness, and goodwill. I've heard it stated a lot of times, and I think it's, it's absolutely true, that grace is the unmerited favor of God. It's God's undeserved favor on us. Um, some people say that mercy is God not giving us what we, des- what we do deserve, and grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. And I think that's a, a pretty good explanation to be able to differentiate between the two, because they are similar. But uh, grace... Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. And, and I think that's a good explanation, but I don't think that's the fullness of the explanation of what grace is. Um, grace, I think, is even beyond that. And we're, and we're, we're going to kind of reveal a little bit more as we go on. But, but Paul says in verse 10, it says that because of the favor and the kindness, the gift, because of the grace, he is who he is, right? He says, because of the grace of God, I am 
what I am. Who was Paul? So that begs the question, who was Paul? What did grace do in Paul that transformed him? As many of us know, grace, or I'm sorry, Paul, um, many scholars believe Paul was one of the most brilliant minds that ever walked the face of the planet. That he was a complete genius, that he was, he was one of the most brilliant minds that walked the face of the planet. That was until Don showed up. And then after that, he took that title. But before Don came, many scholars believe that that Paul was one of the most brilliant minds. He, he knew several languages. Uh, he was a Pharisee. He studied, he studied the, the Torah. Um, not only did he study it, uh, most, most Pharisees in that day would have had the entire five books, first five books of the Bible. They would have had the entire first five books of the Bible completely memorized word for word. Um, he was an absolute genius. Um, but I don't think that's what Paul is talking about here. That's not the grace... Paul is talking about because it says in uh, Philippians chapter 3 verse 7, it says this, it says, yeah, all of these accomplishments that I have once took credit for, I have, I've now forsaken them and I regard it all as nothing compared to the light, the delight of experiencing Jesus Christ as my Lord. Verse 8, truly to know him means letting go of everything from my past and throwing all my boasting on the garbage heap. It's all like a pile of manure to me now, so that I may be enriched in the reality of knowing Jesus Christ and embrace him as Lord in all of his greatness. See, many of us would, would think that, that memorizing the entire Torah or being considered a genius or knowing several languages would be a pretty good definition of who we are, pretty good uh, uh, um, accomplishment. But Paul is saying here that I count all of that as garbage. So when Paul is saying it's grace that has made me who I am, he's not talking about the fact that he was a genius and he was a scholar and all of those things. What he was talking about is this. I, I love in this, in this scripture that he says, he says that I put it all away and that I may be enriched in the reality of knowing Jesus Christ and embrace him as Lord in all of his greatness. That Paul more than anything, was boasting in the fact that he was first and foremost a seeker of God. That the grace that Jesus gave him was that he took him out of the lifestyle of mentally ascending and, and, and being intellectual and, and, and all of those things. He took him from glorifying in that to glorifying in the fact that he is a seeker of the true and living God. So Paul is saying that the grace of God made me a seeker. What else did, is he saying here? What else is Paul uh, saying that he is, that the grace of the Lord made him? He is first and foremost a passionate seeker and lover of God. Ephesians 3, 7 tells us that he is a minister of the greatest message the earth has ever heard. It says, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me uh, by the effective working of his power. Verse 8. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Next verse. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. So what, what has Paul, what has grace turned Paul into? He's turned him, turned him into a seeker of the true and living God. What else has he done? He has also turned him into a proclaimer of the greatest message that has ever been told. 
the greatest, uh, the greatest story that it could ever be told, the, the gift of salvation, the gift of the cross. He is, a, he is a preacher, one of the first preachers and ministers of that gospel. So it's turning him into the minister. And then this one really blows my mind. It says, uh, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. Paul was the one who received the revelation that God had stored within himself from the beginning of the ages. That God had mysteries stored inside himself that he kept from all the prophets, that he kept from all of those who followed him before. He kept all of those secrets in himself. And then the first person he revealed those secrets to was Paul the apostle. Isn't that amazing? Wouldn't that blow, it doesn't that just, to me it just blows my mind because all of the secret mysteries of the gospel was given to Paul to be able to reveal it to the rest of the world. That by the grace of God, Paul went from being a, a Pharisee lost in religion and intellectual ascent to being a seeker of God who was able to then proclaim to the world the mysteries that were hidden in God from the beginning of the ages. And it was grace that made that possible. It was the favor of God, the undeserved favor of God that made it possible for Paul to become who he was. Amen? First, and this, this is another thing, 1 Timothy 1, 13 through 16. It says, mercy kissed me. This is Paul talking. Even though I used to be a blasphemer, a persecutor of believers, and a scorner of what turned out to be true, I was ignorant and didn't know what I was doing. I was flooded with such incredible grace, like a river overflowing its banks, until I was full of faith and love for Jesus, the anointed one. I can testify that the word is true and that deserves to be received by all, for Jesus Christ came into the world to bring sinners back to life, even me, the worst of all sinners. Yet I was captured by grace, so that Jesus Christ could display through me the outpouring of his spirit as a pattern to be seen for all those who would believe in him for eternal life. In another translation, it says Paul calls himself the chief of all sinners. That before grace, Paul was, again, was intellectually ascending and he was, uh, was murdering Christians in his mind for the sake of of, of God. He was murdering Christians. In his mind, he was advancing the kingdom by doing so. And before grace, that's, he, he said, I was the chief of all sinners. But after grace, he becomes a son of God. That he didn't deserve it, but after grace, he becomes a son of God. So when Paul says that grace made me who I am, it means that sin no longer captivated his heart, but he was free. And that who he was was, was a man that was, was free from sin and free from guilt because of the grace of Jesus Christ. Amen? Because of the grace of Jesus Christ. Because of grace, he was who he is. And here's my question to you. What has grace made you? If you were to take that same statement that by grace I am what I am. What has grace made you? And here's the next question. Where would you be if it wasn't for his grace? Think about that for a moment. Where would you be if it wasn't for his grace? Some of you would probably still be sitting on a bar stool somewhere, 
right? Some of you would be, uh, would be, would be still sitting on a bar stool trying to drown your sorrows or, or whatever that may be. Some of you probably wouldn't be with your spouse right now if it wasn't for grace. You may be on number two or three or whatever it may be. Some of you have experienced major, major pain, major uh, disappointments in your life. If it wasn't for grace, some of you would still be wallowing in that pain and experiencing that pain. If it wasn't for grace, where would you be? For me, my problem when I was young was pornography. If it wasn't for grace, I don't know what I, where I would be right now with that. If it wasn't for the grace and forgiveness of the Lord, where would I be? And, and all of these things have, have, a, uh, have an effect. It, it doesn't just stop with one thing. As, as, like, for instance, with pornography, if I was still struggling with that, that issue, with, with that addiction, then that wouldn't just affect me. That would affect my wife. That would affect my, my kids and how I parent them. It would affect how I minister as a, as a, as a, as a preacher. It would affect every aspect of my life. So grace, grace doesn't just fix one thing. It fixes everything. For, for those of you who, who have, have had alcohol issues, Robert, just, I know I call you out all the time. Robert, Robert told me this morning, he's almost, what did you say, almost to a year of being completely sober. If it wasn't for grace, where would he be right now? His marriage has been restored. He's got, his, his grandkids have been restored. He's doing well in life. Where would he be if it wasn't for grace? Where would you be if it wasn't for the grace of God? Because none of us deserved it. None of us deserved it. But he, he freely gives it. He freely gives us grace. Where would you be if it wasn't for grace? Where would you be if it wasn't for grace? How many of you can say that if it wasn't for grace, I would still be in the pit he pulled me out of? I know that's the truth for me. It was by grace that I am what I am. Let's look again at verse 10 there. Verse 10. You can, I think it's the next slide. I, I put it in there twice, Chad. It says, but God's amazing grace has made me who I am. And then it goes on to say, and his grace to me was not fruitless. In fact, I worked harder than all of the rest, yet not in my own strength, but God's, for his empowering grace is poured out upon me. And I've been working this morning to get to this point right here. That grace, the grace that made Paul who he was, it says that that grace was not fruitless. Or in other translations, it says that grace was not in vain. And then he says, I worked harder than all of the rest because of the grace that was put on me. And here's where I want to stick this morning. If Paul is telling us that the grace God gave him was not fruitless or in vain, then that must mean that it is possible for us to use God's amazing grace towards us in vain or make it fruitless. So if, if he's telling us that his, his grace that was given to him was not in vain and it was not fruitless, then the opposite must be true. It must mean that we can actually waste the grace that is, God gives us. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, describes this as cheap grace. He writes this, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, 
Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Though grace was given for free, it costs God his only son. And though it is free, it is not cheap. Even though grace is given to us for free, God bestows unmerited favor upon us. It was not cheap to give to us. It cost him absolutely everything. And I want to I say, this is what I want to say this morning, that grace, if it cost God everything, then it shouldn't be cheap for us as well. If it costs God absolutely everything, then it should cost us something as well. That grace can be given to us in vain. That we can be forgiven of sins, yet not follow Jesus the way we should. That we can, uh, that we can uh, be set free from a, a life that was in bondage and was, was going down the wrong way, and then, and then be set free from all of that and then not pursue God the way we should pursue God. That grace should cost us something. And though we have received grace, I'm afraid we often follow with fruitlessness and thus cheapen the grace that was given to us. That when we follow, that when God gives us grace and there's no fruit that comes out of that grace, we actually cheapen the grace that was given to us. And though we have received grace, I'm afraid we have cheapened it. So how do we cheapen grace? What are some ways we cheapen grace? I'm sorry, I know this is going to be a little bit heavier this morning, but I felt this is what the Lord had been speaking to me this, this week, and I feel like if I have to be convicted, so do you. So here we go. How do we cheapen grace? Number one, we sin without regret, without mourning, and without repentance. How do we cheapen grace? We sin without regret, without mourning, and without repentance. Romans 6, 14. Romans 6, 14 says, Remember this, sin will not conquer you, for, you, for God already has. You are not governed by the law, but governed by the reign of grace, the grace of God. And here's the part that hurts. What are we to do then? Should we sin to our heart's content since there's no law to condemn us anymore? What a terrible thought. Is there another verse? Okay. What a terrible thought. But then it goes on, it goes on I, I, in verse 16, which I apparently forgot to put in there. It says that, that grace was given to us, that, that, that we are no longer under the law, but we are actually under grace, which means this, which means before grace, before forgiveness, we were actually slaves to sin, which means we didn't have a choice, that we were actually slaves to that master. But what grace does is it comes and it sets us free from that, from that taskmaster called sin. And it doesn't, and here, here's the difference. Grace doesn't then make us become holy or make us become righteous or compel us into that lifestyle what grace does is it sets us free to make a choice. Where grace doesn't work like sin does. Sin makes us slaves to that master. But what grace does is it actually completely sets us free so that then we are able to choose whether we are going to walk in righteousness or whether we are going to choose sin over and over again. That when you got saved, you got the grace on your life to completely overcome sin. 
You got the grace on your life to say no to sin. And so that's what that's the problem. That's what makes it even worse for us as Christians when we choose sin because we didn't have to. Because we didn't have to choose sin. We choose sin over God. And when we choose sin, we are choosing that over following the one who gave us gave us the grace. And therefore, we cheapen the grace that was given to us. And what happens is, and, and listen, we all fall short. I know. I know we all sin. We all mess up. The problem is, is when we sin and we mess up and we don't think a thing about it. We don't. Our, our, our prayer is, oh, my bad, God. And then we move on with our life. And there's no contrition. There's no mourning over the sin that we've just committed. There's no uh, repentance, which repentance is, is, is more than just asking for forgiveness. Repentance is churning. The, the word actually means to turn. It means to change your way of thinking. It means to completely reverse yourself and, and flee from that, that, that life of sin. And what happens is, is when we just throw up those my bad God kind of prayers and where there's no contrition, there's no repentance, there's no mourning over sin, what happens is then we begin to walk in sin cycles. Because there's there's no there's no uh, there's there's no mourning over that sin, it becomes easy to do it again, because we know, hey, the grace of God will forgive me once again, and and it, and grace becomes this cheap thing where where I know if I mess up, He's going to catch me. I know if I fall, He's going to catch me. And so therefore, there's there's no reason to to repent to find true repentance because I know if I do it again, I'm going to experience grace again and what happens is we get into those sin cycles where we cheapen the power of grace in our lives and we begin sinning over and over again without mourning without repentance and without regret and when we do that we cheapen grace grace is not just forgiveness of sin grace is the power to choose him over sin when we sin as christians we are choosing that sin over him and that should cause us to be broken over our sin. But all, we, but all we do many times is brush it off with a quick, my bad, and then move on, and which produces a sin cycle, returning to the same sin over and over again. Hebrews 12, verse 4 says, After all, you have not reached the point of sweating blood in your opposition to sin. We got to get past the my bad prayers. And we got to get to a point where we are doing everything in our power to fight the power of sin in our lives. Where we are, and it says you have not even reached the point of sweating blood in your opposition to sin. What are you doing to fight the sin in, our, in your life? Or are we, are we getting as close to the line as we possibly can and still be able to call ourselves Christian? Or are we striving for holiness. And here, here's, here's the quote that I felt like was from the Lord. Grace should compel us to holiness, not excuse us from it. Grace should, should, should uh, create in us a hunger to walk in holiness, not give us an excuse for not doing it. Because when we come up with that excuse, we are cheapening the grace that God bestowed upon us, the favor that he has given us. Grace should compel us to holiness. Amen? Number two, another way we cheapen grace. When we only approach his throne 
in the Holy of Holies when we need something or when it's convenient. When we only approach his throne when we need something or it's convenient. Hebrews 10, 19 through 20 says, And now we are brothers and sisters in God's family because of the blood of Jesus. And he welcomes us to come into the most holy sanctuary in the heavenly realm, boldly and without hesitation. For he has dedicated a new life-giving way for us to approach God. For just as the veil was torn in two, Jesus' body was torn open to give us free and fresh access to him. He gave his own body so we can dwell with him. Yet we go throughout our day barely acknowledging him and treating prayer as something you might do if you have time, which we never do. We never have time. And when we treat the presence of God in a way that is secondary to everything else, we are cheapening the grace because it came as a great cost for us to be able to enter into his presence. It says in, in Hebrews, it says that his, the veil of his flesh, his body had to be ripped open so that we can have access into the Holy of Holies, yet we take it for granted every single day. This one, I think of all of them, hit me the hardest because I know it's true for me. I know it's true for me that, that it almost is an inconvenience to set aside time for prayer. It's almost an inconvenience to set aside time to pray for him because we've just got better things to do. Yet it took the ripping of his flesh to make that available to us. And yet we treat it as an inconvenience. And by doing that, we cheapen the grace that is given to us to be able to enter into the Holy of Holies. What a privilege we have been given, and how have we wasted it? When we gladly receive, oh, that's the next one. So <laughs> what a privilege we have been given to enter into the Holy of Holies. And how many of you can say, like me, that I have wasted that privilege? I have wasted that privilege to be able to approach the throne of God, the throne of our Father, without any hesitation, with complete boldness. And yet we act like it's an inconvenient thing to do. So, so that's the other thing. We only approach his throne in the Holy of Holies when we need something or when it's convenient to us. And by doing that, we cheapen the grace that was given to us. Here's, here's the last one I have for you this morning. We cheapen grace when we gladly receive the forgiveness of sin, but ignore the call to leave all and follow him. When we gladly receive the forgiveness of the cross but we ignore the call to leave all and follow him. And here's, here's a thought that I think is, is, is pretty amazing. The disciples' first response was not a prayer of repentance or of forgiveness. When God called the disciples, when he called Peter and James and John and all those other guys, when he called them, he did not call them into a prayer of salvation. When he called them, they dropped everything that they had in that moment and followed their first step was not a prayer. Their first step was leaving everything and following him. Their first step was leaving everything and following him. Their lives radically changed. Everything that was important to them became secondary to following the man named Jesus. 
And I'm afraid that many times we gladly receive forgiveness. We gladly receive grace. But when it comes to laying everything aside, when it comes to being obedient to his call, we, we tend to push that off and we tend to, to, um, to not follow, but we gladly receive the forgiveness. And when we do that, we cheapen the grace that is given to us. Mark 10, I don't have it up there, Chad, but Mark 10 tells the story of a man uh, they call in the Bible the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler, for those of you who maybe don't know the story, the rich young ruler runs up to Jesus. He starts off real great. He runs to Jesus. He falls on his knees. And he says, great teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So his posture is great. He runs to Jesus. His, his, he falls to his knees. His posture is great. He starts off well, and he wants to know, God, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is the Father. And then he goes on and tells him, this is what you've got to do. So the guy wants to know the steps, right? So this is what you've got to do. You've got to, you've got to obey your mother and father. You've got to keep the Sabbath. You've got to do all that. He begins telling him the commandments, all the things, all the law, right? The things you have to do to uh, walk the straight and narrow path, right? He tells him all of those things. And then the, the, the rich young ruler tells him, he says, well, well, Jesus, I've been doing all of those things since my youth, which is a big fat lie. You know that's true. Not true. So he tells him, teacher, I've been doing all of those things since my youth. And then Jesus looks at him and says this. He says, there's one thing you lack. One thing you lack. Go your way, sell all you have, everything you have, all your riches, all of your animals, all of your livestock, all, all, everything you have, sell it, give it to the poor, and then come, take up your cross, and follow me. What's amazing about this story is that According, at least recorded in the scripture, there are only 12 other men that received that call. There are only 12 other men that's recorded in the gospel that Jesus looked at them and said, follow me. That he gave the invitation to become one of the, one of the disciples. Only 12 other men received that call. And there was a grace to receive that call there. But there was also there was also a cost, and that cost was to leave everything behind and to follow him, to drop everything that he has going for him and to take up his cross and to follow him. And I'm not saying that, and uh, there's some people that interpret that scripture as you have to be poor to follow Jesus or you can't have nice things, and that's not at all what he's saying. In fact, there's, I can prove that through scripture several times where Jesus doesn't require other rich people to leave everything they have. So that's not what Jesus was doing. Jesus was requiring something else. He was requiring obedience. He was requiring obedience to drop everything you have and come follow me. And here's the sad part. The rich young ruler weighed the cost and decided that it wasn't worth it. He weighed the cost and decided that it was too high a price to pay. And so he turns around and he leaves and Jesus looks at it and said that Jesus watched him walk away, that he loved him. He watched him, but he watched him walk away because he was not willing to pay the price. The one thing that I respect about the rich young ruler is that he didn't cheapen grace by accepting the forgiveness, 
but not answering the obedience of the call. That's the one thing I respect about him. I think he made the worst decision of his life. What all did the rich young ruler miss because he decided that it was too high a price? He missed Lazarus being raised from the dead. He missed seeing blind Bartimaeus uh, receive his eyesight. He missed uh, the, the upper room after the crucifixion and when the day of Pentecost came and the power of the Holy Spirit fell. He missed all of those things because he deemed the cost too much. The cost, that the, the grace, though it is free, though the grace of the rich young ruler would have been free, it still is not cheap. And it still has a cost. And that cost is to leave everything and walk in complete submission and obedience to the will of the Father. And we cheapen grace when we accept the forgiveness of God, but ignore the call to follow. We must learn to, to follow Jesus. Amen. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, once again, in, the, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, it's one of my favorite quotes in this book. He says, he says this, he says, Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sale of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out his eye, which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciples leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it costs because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus. Man, I, I love that line. That it is costly because it calls us to follow, but it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus. It is costly because it cost a man his life, and it is grace because it gives man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and it is grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs the life of his son. Ye were bought with a price, and it cost, and it and what has cost so much cannot be cheap for us. For above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered us up, but delivered him up for us. That grace, though it is undeserved, unmerited favor and is given into us freely, it is costly. Once again, it costs Jesus absolutely everything, but God didn't see it as too great a price to, to gain us in return. And if it costs God everything, it should cost us something as well. And my challenge this morning, like the challenge was to me, was let's not allow ourselves to cheapen the grace that was given to us. Let's take this thing absolutely as serious as we can. That we would not walk in grace and then not follow Jesus. But that we would be obedient to his call. Amen? Let us not cheapen the grace of Jesus Christ. Father, I just want to come to you right now this morning. And first of all, I just want to ask for forgiveness, Father, where we have cheapened the grace that you have given us, Lord. 
God, that we would walk and live our lives as Paul did. God, where it says that the grace that was given to me, that, that made me who I am, that that grace was not fruitless and it was not in vain. But Lord, that he said that he worked harder than they all through the, the power of your grace, Jesus. He worked harder than everyone else. Father, wait, may we be like Paul. May the grace that you've given to us not be in vain, Jesus. But Lord, let us just work harder than everyone else to make sure that that grace was not in vain and that it was not fruitless. Jesus, forgive us where we have made grace cheap. God, and help us to live lives, Lord, where we honor the grace that was given to us, Jesus. God, we love you so much this morning. We love you so much this morning, Jesus. In Jesus' name.